Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Israel's capital. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. But before we, um, before we read about the bringing of the ark up to Jerusalem, we learn in chapter 5 that after David was anointed king over Israel and Judah, king over the tribes that followed Saul and the tribes that remained loyal to David, we find that David took his armies, marched north to Jerusalem, which was at that time controlled by the Jebusites, and he defeated them, and he conquered the city, and it became their capital, as we saw in the video, approximately 1,000 years before the time of Messiah. After conquering Jerusalem, he defends himself against the Philistines, and he begins to bring a sense of peace Uh, to the land. And now begins a 40-year reign of David. He starts reigning in Jerusalem when he is uh, some 30 years old, or I should say 30-year reign. When he's 40 years old, he'll live to be about 73. And for the next 20 years of his ministry or of his leadership, he will experience great peace and expansion of the empire. The latter 20 years of his life is really a downward slope as he deals with his family and the challenges that his own sons bring to him. But we're not there yet. Here we are at a high point in David's reign. So reading verse 1 of chapter 6, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalei, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, Adonai Tzavaot, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Remember, the ark of the covenant was that object that Moses was commanded to create. And it was an ark uh, made out of wood, overlaid with gold inside and out. And that ark had inside of it Three objects. It had the tablets of stone that the Lord had written the Ten Commandments upon. It had a pot of a clay jar of manna, which was collected while in the wilderness journey of 40 years. And it also had Aaron's staff that God enabled to bud and produce almonds to indicate that Aaron was to be the high priest. 
All of these objects, interestingly enough, are objects that symbolize and represent life. You have the life given to a staff. You have life coming out of the stone, the word of God that brings life to the people of Israel. You have the pot of manna that sustained Israel in the wilderness. It was to make known to us that our God is a living God and he's the God of all life. And therefore, to trust in him is to have all that is needed for our sustenance and our dependence. And the ark on the outside, on the top, it had two cherubim. Cherubim are not to be confused with the seraphim. The seraphim have six wings, two of which they cover their feet, two of which they cover their face, two of which they use to fly. And those seraphim are seen in Isaiah chapter 6. And the seraphim, they don't have a lot to say, but what they say, they deliver with gusto and accuracy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's their line. That's all they get. But they say it with great gusto as they swirl around the throne of God in heaven bringing glory and honor to the king of all kings. We don't know how many there were. Just as seraphim were around the throne. And we know they had hands as well, because in Isaiah chapter 6, it tells us that when he realized his sinfulness and he said, I am a dead man, one of the seraphim fly from his presence around the throne, go to an altar, and it says, with his hand, drew out a coal from the altar that he then placed on Isaiah's lips in order for him to be healed, cleansed of his sin. It's a very captivating uh, moment. But the cherubim are different. The cherubim, I think, are those creatures that will be particularly upset with those artists that have painted them to look like children. I don't think they're going to be happy with those artists. I'm glad I'm not one. But they are angels, not with six pair of wings, or six wings, three pair, but with two pair of wings. And the cherubim are depicted uh, over the Ark of the Covenant, one on either end with their wings outstretched toward each other in the middle. And between them is a golden plate known as the mercy seat. And upon that golden plate hovered the smoke of the Shekinah glory that symbolized the dwelling presence of God in the midst of the people of Israel. And so it was once a year that one man, the high priest, could enter the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood of the atonement on the Day of Atonement upon the mercy seat. Now that ark had been in an individual's home. And David now is thinking, I want that ark here in the capital of my kingdom, in Jerusalem, to be the heart and soul of our nation and our people. And so what we're reading here is that he gathered 30,000 men to get the ark and to bring it back to Jerusalem. And so it says in verse 3, they carried the ark of God on a new cart, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah 
and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So here's the question. Why is the ark not with the king? What is it doing in Abinadab's home? Now, to know that, the answer to that question, you have to go back to 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 5, before there was a king in Israel, before Saul was anointed, it's during the time of the judges. And the last judge is the judge Samuel. Samuel's not only the last official judge, he's also the first formal prophet of Israel. He's a hinge character in the history of the Jewish people. He connects the period of the judges to the period of the kings. And in 1 Samuel chapter 5, Israel goes into battle against the Philistines. The battle is not going well. So some of the Israelites begin to think, you know what, if we brought God into the battlefield, we'll be victorious. So they said, let us go to Shiloh, which is where the ark had been kept after the Jewish people came into the promised land under Moses. They took the ark and they set up the tabernacle in Shiloh. Remember, Jerusalem isn't the capital until David. So we're going back in time. There's no capital. It's in Shiloh. And they take the ark. They bring it into the battlefield. And when the ark comes into the battlefield, the Philistines at first are frightened. They said the God of Israel is now among them. But some of the leaders, some of the captains, some of the generals among the Philistine army, they begin to tell the, the uh, soldiers not to be intimidated by the presence of the ark, but rather dig deep, get into this fight, and go and wage war with the Israelites. They all shout out in exclamation to their god, Dagon. They go into battle, and they are victorious. On the battlefield, the Philistines are victorious. They take the ark of God. They place it on a cart, and they bring it back to the land of Philistia. It stays with them for seven months. During that time, they begin to take it around to the major cities in Philistia. The Philistines, the Philistines had five major cities. It's referred to as the Pentopolis of the Philistine nation. They had the city of Gath. Goliath came from there. They had the city of Gaza. The Gaza Strip is named after that city today. They had the city of Ashdod. That's in the land of Israel today. They had the city of Ashkelon, which is in the land of Israel today. And they had the city of Ekron, which is in the Gaza Strip. Those five cities were each led by an individual king. They were like city-states, like the Greeks had. And so they take the ark of God from one city to the next. They first take it, if I'm not mistaken, they only take it to three of the five cities. They take it first to Gath. They bring it into the temple of Dagon, the god of the Philistines. Because the Philistines are not natural to the land of Israel, they're actually from one of the isles in the uh, Mediterranean Sea, near Crete, or in that region of Greece in the Aegean Sea. They sailed to the land of Israel, and they settled along the coast. And so their god, Dagon, had the body of a man and the head of a fish. And that's because of their relationship to the sea. 
And so what they did was they took the ark of the Jewish people and they brought it into the temple of Dagon. The next day they found the idol Dagon bowing down before the ark. They reset up the, the idol. The next day they come in, it's bowed down before the ark again. They set it up again. And this time God starts plaguing the Philistines. They begin to break out with all these tumors on their bodies. And many of them are dying. So the Philistines are smart people. So they decide maybe Gath isn't the place to bring it. Let's bring it to Ekron. So they take the ark. They bring it to Ekron. They put it in the the temple of Dagon. And the next day the the idol is bowed down before the ark. They pick up the idol. The next day they find he's bowed down again. And then the tumors begin to spread out among the people of Ekron. So the Philistines, they're smart people. They decide, well, maybe Gath and Ekron are the wrong city. So let's bring it to Ashdod. So they bring it to Ashdod. And the next day, the, the idol is found bowing before uh, the uh, ark. And they pick it up. And then tumors begin to break out. At that point, they say, maybe we should not have the ark. Maybe it's time to return the ark to the people we gave it to. So what do they do? They take the ark. They put it on a cart. They have two cows draw the ark, drag the ark. What do do cows do to an pull? Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Mom. So they, they pull the ark back toward Israel, but not before an offering is made. The Philistines say, we got to make an offering to the God of the Israelites. So what do they do? They cut out. And make out of, I have no idea what this would look like, but out of gold, they manufacture tumors. So I don't know, is that like a giant glob? I don't know. So they make these golden tumors, five of them for the five cities, and they place that on the ark made out of gold. And then they take five mice and they craft these mice, I think it says out of gold, and they put that on the ark too. And then they just let the cows pull, drag, or otherwise, the ark back to the land of Israel. They watch it from a distance to make sure they don't get lost. And so the ark is brought. The Philistines see that it's taken by this man, and he takes the ark, and he brings it to his home. And there it stays for like decades until David arises on the scene. Now David's on the scene. The kingdom is united. He's taken Jerusalem. And he says, why is this ark in this guy's house? Now, you know, what must have been amazing was to have the ark of God in your home. I mean, you know, where did they put it? He, they probably cleaned out one of the rooms, you know, and said, so we got to make this nice. This is the ark of God, you know, and it's overlaid with gold. This is not only valuable, but it's God's presence. This is where the tablets of stone, this is where the rod of Aaron, this is the pot of manna, this is the center of our worship, and it's in my house, and, he, and here it is, and it stayed there, and it was kept safe. And you have to imagine, this family, they must have been worshiping God, right? They must have been, like, uh, thrilled 
that this very central component of Israel's worship in the Holy of Holies that Aaron alone had gone into and that the other high priest, and it's in my house. And the Lord blesses the house, blesses the family, and they take care of it. They're making sure it's stable. And now David comes along, 30,000 men. They want to bring this ark up. So what do they do? They take the ark. They put it on a new cart. In fact, if you look at the verse, you'll see twice it repeats. They put it on a new cart. Why? Because that's not the way you're supposed to move the ark. It was meant to draw our attention to the fact that though there were good intentions, they were not according to God's prescription with regard to how the ark ought to be moved. So you can't just move the ark any way you want. You have to do these things as God has given instruction to do it. So what happens? It says, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. So they're worshiping God. I think it's a great section on worship. Look how they're worshiping. They're worshiping with songs. They're worshiping with lyres, guitars. They're worshiping with harps. They're worshiping with tambourines. They're worshiping, mine says, castanets. I, I don't know, kind of thing. They're worshiping with symbols. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the words, you know, we always say, uh, Jamie, can you just hit those a little lighter? Now we got electronic drums. You mean any way we want, we just turn them up or turn them down. But back then they would have said, hey, Jamie, man, you got to hit those things louder. You know, they say it's too soft, man. Hit those things. And so they're singing, they're playing, they're tambourining, they're cymbaling. And then when they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah, one of the sons of Abinadab, he puts his hand on the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the ark was about to fall. And you'd think he's doing a nice thing. He doesn't want the ark to fall. And when he touches the ark, his life comes to an end. Think about that. He had no idea that he only had a few more moments to live. And sometimes the judgment of God is hard to understand. How often have we talked to people that say, I don't see how God can send people to hell. How can someone be separated from God from all of eternity? That doesn't make sense to me. I can't, I can't get that, you know. Um, and there are other instances. Think about in the New Testament, right, where Ananias and Sapphira, they promise to give some of the money that they have to the apostles. They don't follow through. And when it is found out, God strikes them. And you would think, okay, you know, let's just uh, say you're sorry and pay up or, okay, well, let it go. But no, the judgment of God falls. Sometimes it's hard to understand in what context. And it's hard to understand why judgment doesn't fall in certain instances, right? In some contexts where we would expect, how come God doesn't strike? I mean, there have been many people who have kept back their promises to God over the years. They're not struck every time. But then sometimes God doesn't. So it's hard to understand. And some things we can't understand, you know. Moses says, Deuteronomy 29, 29, great verse, easy to memorize, 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the God, the, God, the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong unto us and to our children. So the secret things are not made known to us. That's not what we're to home in on. Raise a question, can't answer it, but move on. 
to the things God has told us. And God has told us how the ark is to be moved. Now, when you look at 2 Samuel 6, it just says the anger of the Lord, the judgment of God was kindled. He struck him down because of his error. He died beside the ark. And David was angry. Doesn't that oftentimes happen? We get angry if God doesn't do things the way we want. How could you strike him down for trying to help? How come you didn't strike him down when he's been so cruel? You know, those are the things that come to our minds. We don't feel justice is meted out. By the way, that is what, now I shared this the other, other time and someone corrected me. I said Obadiah, but it should have been Habakkuk. And I think that was Kathy up at Valencia. And it's Habakkuk. I think it's Habakkuk, although I thought it was Obadiah, but it's one of those. In which he raises the question, why do the wicked prosper? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Thank you. There we go. Were you up at Valencia? Is that why? <laughs> no, I wasn't. But why do the wicked prosper? And Habakkuk is told, that's really none of your business, Habakkuk. You just proclaim the words I'm telling you. But you'll see, it'll work out in the end. You know, you have to wait. You have to see how things progress. But right now, I'm just not going to tell you. Or Job. Talk about a man who is the most righteous man, the text says, in all the earth. And it just doesn't say it as a description of him. It's what God says of him to Satan. Have you seen my servant Job? He's the most righteous man in all the earth. Now, that's a testimony that you'd like. I mean, we may say, hey, I'm a pretty good guy. But God, what does he think? You know, of Job, he said he's the most righteous man, most righteous person in all the world. And I'm certain Job was saying, God, no, no, don't say anything like that to this one. You know? And then you wonder, why does God allow it to happen? Job answers that question. I know I haven't done anything wrong. I know I'm walking straight. Why is this happening? And God says to him, well, who made the heavens? He doesn't say, well, let me explain to you, Job, what's going on. No, he just says, who made the heavens? Who's in control of things? Who gets to ask the questions of whom? Well, you just need to trust me. I'll tell you some things. I'm not going to tell you all things. I'm not going to tell you this. And that's because I want you to trust me. Because we walk by faith, not by sight. It is faith that pleases God. And so he wants us to trust him with certain things. And so here, David gets angry with God. God wants him to trust him with certain things. So he doesn't explain to him. Now, look what else he goes on. It says, David was now afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, Jerusalem. Rather, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom and for three months. And the Lord blessed him and all his household. So Obed-Edom now has the ark for three months. And then... Rumors start to fly. And the rumor is, have you seen how the Lord has blessed Obed-Ebed? Have you seen that? He's not blessed me like this. David, he's not blessed you like this. Look at the blessings that are coming. It's because the ark is in his house. So David now is thinking, the nation needs these blessings. It shouldn't be centralized into one man's household. It should be benefiting the entire nation. We've got to get it to Jerusalem. How do we do this? And 2 Samuel just says, So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom 
to the city of David with rejoicing. Well, what, what did he do different? Doesn't tell us here. But it does tell us in First Chronicles. And in First Chronicles, if you look at, ver- I'm going to say chapters 13, 14, 15 in there, you'll see the story is told to us in greater detail. And in those chapters we find David during those three months did something that's very critical for all of us to do. He studied the word of God. And the word of God now becomes the means for him to do the right thing. So worship, thinking about worship, worship means God being centralized in our lives, in our home, in our congregation. It's got to be central to everything we do. He's got to be the, the hub of all that goes on in our lives, just as God was central to Israel and had to be housed central in their capital to be a blessing to the entire nation. The second thing is, in order to understand how to receive God's favor, doesn't mean we'll always have you know, smooth sailing, but how to experience the favor of God. The second thing we need to know about worship is, it's the word of uh, how to experience the blessing and favor of God. It's the word of God that unleashes it. You have to know the word of God. That's why our life groups, I think, are critical. Because you need to be in the Word. And we need to learn how to study the Word. And we need to learn how to decipher the Word so that we're doing the Word so that the favor of God rests upon us as He wants it to rest upon us. So David, at first, he just puts the ark on the cart, thinking it came to us that way, but by whom? The Philistines. But now he's got to think... What does God want? Not what do I want, David. Not how I want it, but what does God want? So he starts to study the word. And you know what he learns? He learns that he moved the ark the wrong way. Now, that may be immaterial to you and I or to he and them. But to God, it's critical. We must do as God instructs and not lean on our own understanding or our own devices. So now David realizes, oh, the ark can't be moved any way we want to move it. There are certain priests in the family of Aaron who are given particular instructions to be the ark movers. So those family members in the priesthood are the only ones that can do this. So I couldn't just have anyone do it. I had to have a certain family among the priests do it. And they couldn't move it any way they wanted. There were rings attached to the ark. And thus they had to have staffs that were put through those rings. And they had to then take those staffs and place it on their shoulders. Four guys, one on each side. And they had to walk with it in their hands and carry it that way. Once David realizes that, he said, Oh, I ought to have known that. And I did it wrong. And therefore, the justice of God was true and fair. And and in a way, he's responsible for their deaths. Those will not be the only deaths he'll be responsible for. He was responsible for it, maybe not by a sin of commission, as they say, deliberate but by a sin of omission, by not doing one's homework 
thoroughly enough. So now back to 2 Samuel, we don't read all of that there, but we find that he finally gets it straight. Now look what David does. Verse 13, and when those who had bore the ark of the Lord, see now we know, it's not on a cart, they bore it, they carried it. He says, those that bore the ark of the Lord Lord, had gone six steps. Think about that. So he goes, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six. Hold it. David says, stop. And then he begins to offer sacrifice to the Lord. And so I don't know why six steps. But you know what's interesting? At the front end, he offers sacrifice for sin and praise to God. And when he arrives at the back end, he offers sacrifice in praise and for their sin to God. You see this in verse 17. They brought in the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the thing that shrouds this event is the offering for sin. It's no accident. Messiah of Israel gave his life a ransom for sin. He's the front and back end of our salvation. And thus you see it here as well. The necessity to have our sin dealt with. And he had to have his sin dealt with. Now notice what happens. It says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the shofar. This was a moment of great rejoicing. And what I really love about this is how David humbles himself in worship and in adoration. Worship involves doing things God's way. Worship involves focusing our attention on the word of God that instructs us in worship. Worship means humbling oneself before the Lord. That's what it means to worship in spirit and in truth, in humility before God. And David casts off his royal robes. Here's the king of Israel. And he puts on simply a linen ephod like the normal uh, citizens of Jerusalem and Israel would be wearing. You would not know he was the king except for the fact he may have been at the front of the processional. He didn't have his crown. He didn't have anything to indicate. He stood shoulders above the others with regard to his position. He was just like everyone else in his worship and in his praise. And his wife, Michal, the daughter of Saul, does not like what she sees. Why? Because she didn't like David. She already didn't like him. You know, it's an interesting thing I shared uh, Thursday night. And I've said it a variety of times, and it's something to really take hold of. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, okay? Your, my, sinning does not make us a sinner. Our sinning reveals we're sinners before we sin. So when a person steals, he didn't become a thief when he stole. He was already a thief in his heart, which manifested itself in stealing. The act didn't make him a thief. He was already a thief in his heart that make, made him steal something. He's already guilty for being a thief before he took anything because he already had the desire in his heart. That's what Yeshua is saying. When you look at a person with lust, you are already committing adultery. 
Why? Because you're a sinner before you sin. You're already an adulterer before you commit adultery because you've already fought it and desired it and were it in your heart. We're sinners because in our heart we're already antagonistic to the things of God. Therefore, we need salvation so we can stop being antagonistic. How are we antagonistic? By the things we see. Why? Because we're already sinners before we do them. And by the way, that's the only explanation for the death of infants. Because infants die. They didn't do anything. They're too young. They're too immature. So why are they affected by death? Because they, like all of us, have already inherited a sin nature. And given enough time, they will demonstrate their sin nature by their sinning. So we start as sinners. We manifest our sinfulness by our sinning. It's not the other way around. We're not good people until we do something wrong. We're already bad people in need of God's grace. That's why it says the wages of sin is not the possibility of death. It is death. So why does an infant die if it hasn't sinned? Because it's already a sinner, though it hasn't sinned. You're right. It hasn't sinned. He or she hasn't sinned. But he or she has already been a sinner. And so David encounters Michal. Why does she act the way she does? Because she already despises him. She does not like him in her heart for whatever reason. And so as a consequence... She manifests his dis, her dislike for, his, for her husband because she, he does not live up to her expectations. You should not demean yourself that way. David didn't see himself demeaning himself. He saw him humbling himself before God. And he saw himself as no different than anyone else, a sinner in need of God and a sinner who ought to be praising God for his forgiving grace. Michal was prideful. And she did not understand the nature of sin nor the gift of grace. And what she says to him is, you are like these vulgar, that's what the new, my translation says, you are like these vulgar fellows. And you know, the word for vulgar is very interesting. It's harakim, the vulgar ones. Harakim. It's where we get the word that you already know in the New Testament when Yeshua says, don't call somebody Raka because you'll be in danger of hellfire. We say, we oftentimes translate it as fool. It doesn't really mean fool, being foolish. It means being, thinking of another as beneath you, like a vulgar person. And so what Yeshua is telling us is if you think yourself higher, You're like the evil one who is prideful, and therefore you are in danger. He's not saying people aren't foolish. Of course they are. The fool has said in his heart, the Bible says, there is no God. And so are we so wrong in saying, you know, you're being a fool when you you argue the way you're arguing. That's not what Yeshua is talking about. He's talking about when you demean someone to think you are greater, better, or superior. No, we are all sinners. But some are smarter sinners than others. Some sinners can think better than others. And those that don't think quite as clearly sometimes do behave foolishly, think foolishly. And certainly, the Bible says, those who say there is no God are of such an ilk. But what David was showing is that I'm no different. I have the same needs everyone else needs. I just have a different position as the king of Israel. And so with all of his might, 
in all of his glory and all of his ability, he worships God and gives him praise. Now, just in closing, I want to read to you. I think it's in, um, in uh, Chronicles. I want you to read, I want to read for you the psalm David puts together in praise of God for when he brings the ark in. I just want you to sort of, you can read along with me if you want, uh, or you can just listen to these words because they are so wonderful. I've not focused on them to the degree to which I've been able to recently. And I don't want to really say a whole lot about them. I think they're self-explanatory. You know, it's sort of like listening to a piece of music and then you start dissecting how everything works together and then before long you lose the significance of the song or the music. This is what David writes. As the, as the ark is being brought up, as he's dancing before the Lord, as the sacrifice is going up and all Israel is celebrating, he says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. That's why I really like songs of praise that are songs not about our condition, but about him. And songs that are not about him, but are to him. That when we come to worship, we're singing to the Lord, not merely about him or reflecting things that are true of him. Although that's... uh, Certainly okay, but I love this. He says, give thanks to the Lord. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell him and everyone else of his wondrous works. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. And it's so cool to think about God has set you apart. It's it's like the house of Obed-Ebed was greatly blessed because it was set apart from all other homes because it had the Ark of the Covenant. Israel is set apart from all other nations because God is dwelling there. And look what he says. He's the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. You got to think he's going to put that in there because he realizes that's why these men, this man died. He didn't remember the covenant. He didn't remember the words that God had commanded. Not just for him, but for all time. Look what he says. The covenant he made with Abraham. He swore promise to Isaac while he confirmed to Jacob as a stature. To Israel is an everlasting covenant saying, get this, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. So whose land is it? It's Israel's land. It's the Jewish people's land. When you were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in this land, you were wandering from nation to nation. You know, you know this is David now. Think about the history of Israel, how the Jewish people have wandered from the four corners of the earth, which wasn't true then, but is now. And he says, you've wandered from nation kingdom to kingdom to another people. He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. David will reiterate that line. I think it's Psalm 115 or so, or 15. He says, sing to the Lord, all the earth. 
Jews and non-Jews. Tell of his salvation. Declare his glory. His marvelous works. For great is the Lord. Greatly to be praised. And he's to be feared above all gods. Think about what happened with Dagon. All gods. For all the gods of the people, they're worthless idols. But the Lord, our Lord, made the heavens and the earth. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Strength and joy are in his place. That's why we have to stay there, focus there. He needs to be central if we're going to experience joy, strength. I love this. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills and let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy. Before the Lord, he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Ki l'olam chazdo, for his mercy endures forever. And also say this. It's like, you know, he's, he finished, but then he says, whoa, 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 hold on, say this. Save us, O God, of our salvation. Gather and deliver us from among the nations. They haven't even been scattered yet. It's almost like he's prophesying. Gather us from where you've, you've scattered us. That we may give thanks to your name and glory your name. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, amen, and praised the Lord. Is that not a great psalm? Are you down? Read that psalm. Are you weary? Read that psalm. Are you in need of joy? Read that psalm. Are you in need of purpose? Read that psalm. This is what that whole psalm is about. One last thing. As important as the ark was central to Israel, you know, we have something even more important. We have the Spirit of God that resides in the center of our being and the Spirit of God who dwells in the center of our congregation. We don't just have an ark that symbolizes something significant, the presence of God. We have the presence of God. And we have his presence by his spirit, which is vastly more significant than anything that preceded his coming into our world. Remember what Yeshua said. The spirit of God, he said, he will come, I will send him to you. And he says, he has been with you, but now he will, future, he will be in you. And if he dwells in you, you are, as Paul says, the tabernacle of the Spirit of God. You are the new ark of the covenant, you might say. Might say. Pushing it, he doesn't say that, but you are the place in which God dwells. And he dwells in you richly. He dwells in you fully. And therefore, what David is saying is what we need to reflect on the word of God and what does the word of God say he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world and therefore we need to rest in him rely upon him and embrace him and that's why Messiah has come that he would dwell in our midst forever two or more gathered there I am in your midst that's why he says I will never leave you nor forsake you because his spirit has been given to us to bring us step to, by step 
in the journey of life that he's laid out for each and every one of us. So let's pray. Our God and Father, and the ushers can come forward. Our God and Father, we thank you for your marvelous word to us this day. What a splendid moment it must have been when David and all the house of Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant up to the city of Jerusalem, the city of the great king who is yet to come. And as they circled around the tabernacle, as they saw it placed back into the Holy of Holies, as they saw the cloud of glory hover and the offering being offered, their worship and praise must have been glorious and deep. So, Father, we have your Spirit who dwells in our midst. Might you help us that we too would praise you as we ought, not only when we gather its service, but even at each phase and moment of our lives. Help us, Lord, as we seek to walk in your ways and to follow you. We bless you and we praise you. We exalt you and we glorify you. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.